Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today, I'll be talking about a despotic ruler enamored of his own talents, certain in his brilliance, who emerged from a dynasty of of deeply dysfunctional people, and who was eventually ousted from office where he died alone and friendless. I'm, of course, talking about the Emperor Nero. The Emperor Nero ruled nearly 2,000 years ago, having taken over from his stepfather, but probably some very contorted cousin as well, the Emperor Claudius. His rules become a sort of totemic one, a kind of synonymous with just crazy despotism. I was like, lucky enough to have Shushma Malik on my weekly YouTube uh, History Hit Live. It goes on Timeline, which is YouTube's biggest history channel. It's our partner YouTube channel. And she talked me through Nero and why he continues to matter uh, in the modern world. Um, Please go and check out our new uh, podcast we've launched. It's called The Ancients. It's with our in-house Tristorian, the legendary uh, classical historian, Tristan Hughes. Uh, He is doing this podcast, which is taking the world by storm. It's rampaging up the charts so please go and check out the ancients he's got lots of uh, lots of material on there about the the ancient classical world not just from the mediterranean basin but from all over the world so please go and check that out in the meantime though everyone here's shushma malik enjoy shushma malik thank you very much for joining us hello thank you very much for having me it's great to be here well, we had to have you on. You appeared on the uh, one of the History Hit podcasts called The Ancients, and you were like the star performer. So the team said, you've got to get her on. And so here we are. We're going to talk near Center us here. When are we talking about? Okay, so we're in the first century AD. We're in Rome. And we are specifically in the years between 54 and 68 AD. So we are kind of mid first century. Uh, The emperors haven't have been the system of government since about 27 BC. So we're we're firmly into the system of government of the emperors by now. But Nero is still part of the first dynasty of Rome's emperors, the Julio-Claudians. So um, he's still, there are still sort of experiments being done with the nature of being an emperor in Rome. after the after the end of the Republic. Well, and definitely experiments being done around the succession, because what relationship, I mean, this might, your head might explode when you try to tell me this, but what, what relationship did he have with Claudius, the previous emperor? So he was Claudius's adopted son, and that's because Claudius was married to his mother, Agrippina. It does get more complicated, though, because Agrippina and Claudius were uncle and niece. 
So he also has um, a relationship with Claudius that's that's uh, linked through his mother by blood as well. But uh, the more straightforward answer is that when Agrippina and Claudius got married, which was controversial, there was some changing of the, the laws that had to take place in order for that to happen. But when it did, Claudius um, eventually adopted Nero. So he became his adopted son and actually his heir as well. And then his mother may or may not have poisoned uh, Claudius to make to make way for him. Is where where do you come down on that one? Yes, yeah, so I I'm quite a uh, skeptic of the uh, various crimes laid at the door of Agrippina. Many crimes, which is his mother, Agrippina the younger. Many crimes are laid at her door. She is quite one of those women that gets tarred with quite a black brush um, when it comes to her relationship with both her son and Claudius, her husband. I, I think probably uh, Claudius ate a bad mushroom, and things things sort of went wrong from there. Our sources certainly one well a few sources in particular certainly suggest that she was involved but even those sources don't necessarily implicate Nero in it um, his own involvement Agrippina may have committed murder the murder of Claudius but I'm I'm skeptical well Claire Whitbread agrees with you such a classic trope she says to blame powerful women for all kinds of wrongdoing very good point Claire but mm-hmm. but Nero's reputation is as one of these kind of almost caricature, like, you know, Caligula, Nero, Caracalla. There's these sort of lists of Roman emperors that we believe to be sort of, you know, uniquely de- depraved. Is that, to tell us a little bit about their reputation, and is it is it fair? Yeah, so um, exactly those. So Caligula, um, he's emperor only for four years. Generally, the story goes that he's quite good for the first two years, then develops some sort of illness. Perhaps he does get very ill. And that um, is sometimes said to contribute to his madness. But we've got to remember, we're dealing with sources here writing 150 years later. So trying to, you know, diagnose the psychology of, of someone based on those sorts of sources is, of course, you know, impossible, really, virtually impossible. So Caligula is often seen as perhaps the maddest of the emperors. Um, If we want to give them, categorise them, Caligula is the mad one. Nero is the most cruel, according to tradition, I guess. Domitian is the most paranoid. He's the next sort of bad emperor who comes at the end of the Flavian dynasty, which is the dynasty after the Julio-Claudians. Commodus, uh, of course, of gladiator fame, is mad and cruel and dangerous all all in one. And Caracalla as well. Um, Caracalla is not at the end of a dynasty like Nero, Commodus and Domitian were, but rather he is involved in the murder, well, I say involved, is accused of murdering his brother in order to gain sole power. So he has a a very bad reputation based on, on that as well. So you do tend to get, they do more or less come towards the end of a dynasty. Caracalla is perhaps an exception there, but it's it's quite striking that Nero and then Domitian and then Commodus, as a dynasty falls, the story told about them tends to be one of a a decline, as we might expect. And certainly they become the mad, bad, dangerous to know emperors. And do you think, how fair do you think that is with Nero? I mean, do we think he was, do we think he was pretty bad? I personally think he 
was not um he does not do everything that he's accused of um if you take the worst reading of nero if you think of him as a wife killer uh, someone who set fire to rome as someone who needlessly destroyed the city in order to build his own golden palace um you know with no regard for the people no regard for anyone else if you think of him as you know someone who does kills his mother does all of those things also if you think of that in isolation so not in the context of the roman dynasties and the infighting that the families were going through um, as well, then yes, he's he's certainly very bad. But I, I don't see it personally like that. I think it's possible that he would have killed members of his family because that happens on occasion um, in, in Roman politics. Um, it's not uh, unique to him necessarily. It doesn't make it okay, of course. But I think the idea that he set fire to Rome isn't true. Our sources um, you know, say that that's a rumour. I also think things like the Golden Palace can be understood in, in other ways. He probably opened a lot of it up to the public, for example, and he was trying to demonstrate you know, the spectacle of, of Rome. Perhaps he gets things a bit wrong, but I personally don't see him as an out-and-out tyrant that, that maybe some, sometimes he's portrayed as. We're going to watch a little bit more of, of the Tony Robinson doc now uh, in a second. I just want to ask you a quick question, question first. You mentioned he killed his mum. You've got to at least tell everyone that story, whether it's true or not, but it's an extraordinary story. It is, it is. Yes, I, I kind of, you know, throw away comment. Oh, and he killed his mother. This is 59 AD, we're in. So his mother Agrippina um, has been sort of in and out of favour with him. She was very close, obviously, at the beginning of his reign, but then fell out of favour, perhaps. And, and um, Nero wanted to marry another woman he was he was at that point married to his stepsister um octavia who was the daughter of claudia so giving him a stronger link to to the previous emperor and he decided that she was getting in his way perhaps a little bit too much he wants to make it though look like an accident so he invites her for dinner um just off the bay of naples and um in order to he arranges in order for her to get back to go back in a boat but he arranges for the boat to sink he arranges for the ceiling to collapse and for the boat to sink. Unfortunately, he didn't quite reckon on uh, his mother being as, uh, you know, canny as she is and as, as, you know, clever and clearly intuitive as she was. So she, when the boat collapsed, she realised what was going on. She managed to uh, swim to safety. And instead of going, she's, she's a shrewd woman, instead of going and confronting Nero and saying, what on earth were you doing? Um, she goes and she says, I, I, the, the, the boat collapsed. Um, you know, and, and thankfully I'm okay. Praise <laughs> that I'm I'm okay. And um, Nero has to keep up his pretense as well, and um, is oh thank God you're 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 okay, mother. And then um, sends someone to to kill her and, uh, and and to stab her, and that's how she meet, meets her end. Right, but that is a, obviously is that a story Suetonius tells us, and you're not certain about that. It's it's a story Tacitus tells us okay. um, as well. So so <laughs> maybe on slightly firmer ground. But um well it's a it's a story that was circulating in Rome, perhaps. It, it's um certainly not what would have been known about him uh, more widely necessarily. The official version of it was that she was um he thought she was involved in a conspiracy against him, and that's why he had to take that action. That's the official version, and that's what would have gone out. But of course, Rome, like um other big cities has a rumour mill and that is perhaps a representation of, of the rumour mill as well as, as you know possibly a you know a true story. 
Absolutely. We can't be sure about what's happening at the moment in our world, let alone 2,000 years ago. Isn't it possible that Nero was just someone thrust into a family business when all he wanted to be was an artist and that drove him mad, Shushma? Was he just a frustrated artist? I heard that argument used about other dictators, uh, perhaps in the 20th century. It's a bit of a scary one. What do you think? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, one thing to mention about Nero that I haven't yet is that he was he was a teenager when he became emperor, 16, um, about to turn 17. And he uh, is very, very young. And as Raven rightly says, part of his biography is that he wanted to act on stage. He was a performer. He was a singer. He was a chariot racer. He won awards for these. Our sources say he won awards because, you know, no one isn't going to give the top prize to the emperor. <laughs> you'd be pretty silly if he didn't but it was his passion and so certainly that idea of him having to go into a a political environment you know become emperor is not necessarily what he would have thought would happen when he was very young before his mother married Claudius it would have been fairly unlikely that he would have been been, become emperor so you know Claudius had his own children Octavia and and Britannicus uh, Britannicus being a a boy would have succeeded if Claudius had died later, if he had if he'd had died when Britannicus was of the right age. He was only 13, I think, when um Claudius died. So he was he was younger than Nero. And so it, it certainly there's a, a sense there that perhaps he has become uh you know uh put put in a position that he w- didn't want to be in. We don't want to talk about how Nero treated his little stepbrother Britannicus because it's a family show. Um what about but Nero's First of all, the fire. I mean, he, did he set fire to Rome for his own purposes? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's very unlikely you're going to burn down a city that, you know, that is the most important city um, in the empire. He uh, also, you know, was building a palace at the time. I know the Domus Aurea is is um, famous, but he was building um, the Domus Transitoria, um, a palace that he wanted to live in before that. And that was destroyed in the fire as well. And also, you know, uh, even, even the hostile accounts, so Tacitus, you know, is, is, is measured here. He says, look, there are rumours that Nero started the fire, but in, you know, in reality, also those are, you know, it's it's not clear. He opened, as soon as he found out about it, he was in Antium at the time. He came back to Rome. He opened his palace gardens so that the people could come in and be safe. And he rebuilt Rome. The palace is famous, but he rebuilt the other parts of Rome, the rest of Rome, in a very sensible way. He made the streets wider. He made the building materials materials, less flammable. Um, And so there's a lot to be said of how he handled that crisis, I think. But of course, you know, the Domus Aurea then casts a a shadow over all of that. As one of our great listeners, it was a good idea at the time, points out, you know, he was alleged to have kicked his wife to death, that there was violence. He was obviously wildly, it seems that he was, there was a, there was a mania to him. Do you think that the, the, just being given that amount of extraordinary power over that huge empire when he was that young sent him sent him in some way crazy. Yeah, so so absolutely, yeah, you're, you're absolutely, that's absolutely right. One of the stories um, told about him is that in in about AD sixty five he murdered his wife 
uh, by kicking her in her stomach when she was pregnant. And it's a horrific story, a very, very, you know, difficult story to read about in the ancient sources. But certainly, you know, the power that he would have had, the control as a, an emperor, whether he, it sent him mad or not, I don't know. That sounds like the action of a madman. I, I, I grant you that. There are other stories in literature of tyrants killing their wives with kicks. Periander, a tyrant of Athens, has a similar story said about him. I don't want to explain this away as a literary idea of how you explain this type of, you know, sudden deaths when of pregnant women. I'm not saying it's that, but there is, you know, elements of this that that have, you know, other other literary examples of these sorts of things that perhaps we can use to help. But I wouldn't like to diagnose him as mad. But I, I mean, if someone gave me the Roman Empire when I was 17, I'm not sure I, what I would have done. <laughs> I think I would have gone, I think I would have gone pretty wild. Uh, talk, talk, his death was a sad, sort of sad and pathetic end, wasn't it? Tell me about how, how he was removed from, sort of ejected from office and then murdered. Yeah, so this, you're absolutely right. It's a very sad story. Um, we only have an account of this from Suetonius and one from a, um, a later historian named Cassius Dio. Um, we don't have Tacitus because we've unfortunately lost the last two years of Nero's reign in, in Tacitus. Uh, it's not extant. But what Suetonius tells us is that what he, he hears that um, the Senate have declared him a hostis, an enemy, a public enemy, and he tries to get some poison to commit suicide. No one will give him poison. He is running around his, his palace trying to think of what to do. He thinks maybe he can convince people to send him, to give him a post in, in, in Alexandria, in Egypt. He can go there and, and you know, uh, be happy, happy somewhere in the east realizes that's a no go. Um, his freedmen then help him escape Rome. So this is sort of at night time. They have to they have to escape Rome in a sort of stealthy way. He goes to the villa of his freedman named Phaon um, on the outskirts of Rome, and and can you know the idea is that the Praetorian Guard are are coming as he can hear sort of them approaching. He realizes that either he has to commit suicide or they're going to do terrible things to him and so he decides well he decides to commit suicide he utters the lines not quite his death lines but uh, not far off what an artist dies in me and then um he could but he can't quite do the final act himself so one of his freedmen um Epaphroditus helps him helps him do it um and he he uh, stabs himself and that's how Nero meets his end he does get a good funeral though they spend quite a lot of money on a, a nice funeral for him so he gets buried uh with his um fa the father's side of his family and uh with a lavish funeral so <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores. And follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit 
wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, you know, that makes up perhaps for some of, the, some of the nasty way in which he met his end. What did the Roman people make of this death? And did it change given the kind of political instability that, that followed him, four emperors in the space of a year. Yeah, so the Civil War, the period of the Year of the Four Emperors, as it's called, AD 68, sort of mid uh, AD 68 to AD 69, certainly was a horrific time in Rome. Um, Tacitus talks about this and says it was one of the worst, um, you know, things that he'd uh, heard about, seen, encountered in terms of the way that Rome was constantly in a state of fluctuation, constantly with battles and on on fire, um, as it were. So that was certainly a a very traumatic period but it's interesting that actually two of those four emperors so um, the four emperors are Galba um, who is immediately after Nero, Otho and then Vitellius and then Vespasian who eventually wins out and founds the new dynasty, the Flavians. Two of those four, Otho and Vitellius, both positioned themselves as successors of Nero. So the Golden Palace that I've been talking about, Nero never had a chance to finish. Otho was trying to finish the Golden Palace. Um, and he uh, and both of them sort of positioned themselves as supporters of Nero. Otho, in fact, had been married to Nero's second wife, Poppea, before Nero was. So there is quite a, a close connection there. The other sort of story about uh, his popular uh, reception after his death is we have a source from the second century, late first century, late first century, early second century, from uh, a Greek writer named Dario Chrysostom, who says there are many people in the East who um, who wished he was still alive because they quite liked him. And um, he was quite popular. He spent time in Greece. So, yeah, it, it seems that he did have a semblance of, of popularity after his death, enough, it seems, for two of the those four emperors to um, say, well, you know, we are the successors of Nero. And and let's talk now about Christianity. What what was the what was the state of, of this new young religion creed movement when Nero was alive when he was killed? Right. So this is a, a hotly debated topic in scholarship. That what what uh, how 
much Christianity had really made it to Rome by this period. So remember where AD 54 to 68, the critical years of AD 64 to 65, where Christianity enters Nero's story, is still, you know, as you can tell, just 60, 60 something years after, well, 60 something years after the birth of Christ, only 30 something years after the death of Christ. So we're in Christianity's extreme infancy here. And of course, Christianity began in the East. It began in 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 Judea it began in in where where Christ was so um there are Christians in Rome at this point it seems St Paul writes to the Romans um in in the New Testament for example the letter to the Romans so there is you know there are there are Christians in Rome but how many what sort of take on the religion they had um what how all you know it certainly wasn't anything that we would recognize as an organized religion or or anything like that where you know all of these are, are, are you know fairly difficult questions to answer just through lack of evidence but certainly when the story of Nero and the Christians is linked to the fire so after the fire those rumors that were spreading around that Nero started it needed you know an answer from the administration as it were from Nero and decided that or he and his advisors decided that in order to get rid of the rumors they would blame a group of Christians so a group that were unpopular in Rome, I should say, that um, the historian Tacitus tells us were Christians. That's how he um, how he describes them, the Christiani. So it's it, it sort of tied in with the story of the fire. But the real sort of crux of it is that uh, the one source who tells us about this from, from the, the Roman perspective, the pagan perspective, as it were, um, Tacitus says, well, Nero um, killed them in such a horrific way that, you know, even people who, you know, citizens sort of said, well, um, they're being sacrificed to the cruelty of the emperor. Um, it wasn't seen as a proportionate punishment. So, for example, again, this is a bit of a harrowing story, but the story goes that Nero put Christians up on crucifixes. Um, which again was a common punishment in Rome, but uh, for, for slaves, put Christians up on crucifixes and burned them alive at night to serve as torches, um, or had um, wild beasts come and uh, and and gnaw, eat at them, basically bite at them, until the, until you know the inevitable happened uh, in terms of death, um, and that Nero reveled in it, so that he he rode um, on his his chariot in between um you know these these crucifixes as as this was happening so it's a horrific story um which we only have from one source we only have it from tacitus suetonius doesn't talk about it um in those terms he says christians were punished under nero but doesn't link it to the fire or anything like that. I mean, it's just what a couple of sentences and Cassius Dio doesn't mention it at all. But uh, yeah, so that's the, the, the story that relates Nero to the Christians. And, and is that where this idea that Christians started to believe that he was the Antichrist came from? Yes, yeah, so this is the um, this sort of started to become popular a bit later. So it wasn't immediate. It wasn't that we started to get literature of the first century talking about Nero as, as the Antichrist in in explicit in in explicit terms. We start to see it really kind of take off in the third century and about the mid third century, where we start to see Nero named as um, the Antichrist in uh, the book of Revelation. So the first beast in Revelation, but also the man of lawlessness in Paul's two Thessalonians, or both of these are, are Antichrist figures that will bring about an, an apocalypse of some 
some description and uh, so Nero starts to get associated with with those figures and that's how he he begins to be associated and talked about with the Antichrist and it becomes very popular in from the third century to about the early sixth century AD. So it's not it, there's no evidence from the time that it, it was, the Christians saw him as this sort of unique existential threat. There's no evidence in terms of, uh, there's no um, letters or imperial edicts and that sort of thing that would have gone out to the East to suggest that Nero was starting a persecution or anything like that. No, um, this was, they were punished for the fire, you know, or arrested for the fire. Of course, they were they were singled out for being Christian as part of his reason for scapegoating them. But um, there wouldn't have been an implication that, uh, that Christians further East or, or in other parts of, of the empire would necessarily have felt like they were under threat from Nero. And certainly they weren't, obviously, for the rest of his reign. He had another three years after that. But the way that I guess um, he has been interpreted or the way that that Christian anxiety has been seen is by saying that when John and when Paul wrote Revelation, wrote to Thessalonians, they were thinking of Nero. That's who they had in mind when they described the first beast, when they described the man of lawlessness. I find personally, I'm sceptical about that. I don't think um, that they would necessarily have had one figure in mind. Um, I think there's, especially because Nero wasn't seen as a hate figure in the East. He was quite popular in the East and their their audience was primarily, if we remember where the Christians were in the East, Revelation is, is addressed to seven churches in Asia, in the province of Asia, modern day Turkey. So to paint to kind of assume that Nero is 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 an antichrist there or would have been a ty- the tyrannical figure we think of him or understood that way in the first century in the east I think is is difficult from a historical point of view so I don't think that he was written into the bible I think some early Christians particularly in the west may well have associated Nero with those figures um, earlier than he's written in in the third century, um, but um, in Christian literature, but explicitly written anyway. But yeah, I I, I think that the idea that he was specifically written in is um, is is a bit difficult. What about we got Anna Caloris asking who benefited from Nero getting this unbelievably evil reputation because it's one that has endured. Yeah, so um, the immediate answer, I suppose, would be the uh, successive, din- successive dynasty. So the Flavians, they Nero ended a dynasty. He was the last emperor in the Julio-Claudians. Um, when uh, Cassius Dio describes it, he says that Nero is the last in the line of Aeneas. Those of you who are familiar with the Trojan War will know that um, Aeneas was the person, the Trojan prince who escaped Troy and went to found Rome, um, you know, back in the myth times as it as it were and Nero is described as the last of that line because um, Julius Caesar had associated himself with that line and then you know and, and then his successor was Augustus and Augustus um, was Nero's great great grandfather great 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 grandfather so um, you know we have that that line and then we have then we get a new dynasty and, and the Flavians on the one hand held up or Vespasian held up Augustus as being great because he's the founder, but in order to justify 
creating a new dynasty, breaking the line that started with Aeneas, as it were, um, you, you need to demonstrate severe trauma. So lots of these writers are writing under the Flavians or under the dynasty even after that, the, um, under Trajan. Nerva and Trajan or Hadrian so they are writing in a very difficult different political scene and an emperor who ends a dynasty is always going to be a problematic figure for the dynasty that succeeds um, succeeds it and uh, yeah so that that I think has has an, an impact and that the way then that they characterize Nero and the immense cruelty with um, with the the murders of his wives and, and and those kinds of things cruelty against against the Christians cruelty against nature even um in the way that he dug lakes and that sort of thing translates quite nicely into an apocalyptic figure like the Antichrist lots of the traits used to describe an Antichrist the antithesis of Christ um you know come up with Nero because he is to some extent the antithesis of Augustus we have you know so lots of, of similar ideas lots of similar motifs that transfer nicely from the Antichrist um, to Nero. And when you have a, a very large selection of people who are converting, remember, Christians were converts uh, in this in this period. Some may have been born into Christian families, but many were converts from Judaism or from, from Greco-Roman religion. To have a, a, a way, a familiar way, we all know Nero is a tyrant. So to have him then um, as your analogy for the Antichrist in you know, third, fourth and fifth centuries works worked very well, it seems, because it, it was very popular. So how should we think, let's finish up by just saying, how should we think about... Nero now? <laughs> well, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Nero now. So um, I think, think about him a lot. No, um, I, I think Nero now, he gets, he's very popular in the imagination. That's one of the things I find fascinating about him. Um, he comes up in, in, um, in the media, in political culture, in popular culture quite a lot. And he tends to be held up as a you know, a paradigm of the tyrant, which can be useful, you know, for understanding the way tyranny works, the way that we deconstruct, you know, the, the features that we apply to tyrants then and now and, you know, have continued to do so. But I think with Nero, it's, it's worth... If you if you really are you know interested in and in, in just going back to some of the sources, having a read of some of, of what's said, because often there's nuance in the sources that gets missed, like Tacitus talking about the fire just being a rumor that he started it. Um, Tacitus also talks about the laws that Nero put through or, or helped the Senate to put through that were very successful, that helped groups of people, that that helped, you know, he made before he even became emperor, he made speeches in the Senate in Greek to try and get, you know, a, a, a release from taxation of parts of Greece that had come under uh, natural disasters. So there's more in him than perhaps the stories always, always tell. And I think it's just, it's always, I think no matter what person we're looking at, no matter what historical period, to try and find out as, as much as, as you can and to try and, and think about characters as grey rather than black and white are useful for, for historical criticism. Wise words from one of our best historians. Thank you, Shushma Malik. Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Shushma, that was great. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. <laughs> and you are also on uh, one of our History Hit podcasts, The Ancients. So please go and check that out. If you want to go and subscribe to History Hit, you can do. Just go to historyhit.tv and uh, use the code TIMELINE. You get a special introductory offer. And you get to join the best, uh, ne- the Netflix for history, it's the best history channel on earth. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.